welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones. And I'm your co-host, Clara Tatefield. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and final year law students who are very passionate about feminism and the law. Today on the podcast, we have Paulina Garcia del Moral, Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. Would you please introduce yourself? Hi, yes, my name is Paulina Garcia del Moral. I am indeed assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph. I am a Mexican, but I moved to Canada early on and, uh, well, early, I was 19, but uh, so I've lived half of my life here. And uh, yeah, here it is that I found my passion for sociology. Um, but yeah, so now, in Canada, I've been living here for um, 20 years, and uh, I've been at the University of Guelph since 2018, and I, I really enjoy working on issues of gender, law, and power. Great. Thank you for that introduction, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. So um, as, you, as you mentioned, I mean, your research is in law, gender, and power, but your research area relates to the intersection of law, gender, and power in transnational processes in Mexico, Latin America, Canada, and Europe. Could you please tell us more about your field of research and why you decided to focus on these specific areas? Yes, of course. So the core, at the core of my research is actually gendered violence, but I approach it from an intersectional perspective and also a transnational perspective. I started focusing on gendered violence, specifically the killing of women since my undergraduate. I started looking at the representation of uh, murdered and missing women in Mexico at the border with uh, the United States and Ciudad Juarez, recognizing that um, the representation itself was violent and that it contributed to the devaluation of women's lives. And as I moved on into my master's, I realized that there were very many parallels between the Mexican context and the Canadian context with respect to uh, what we now understand as missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. At the time, the early mid 2000s, that was not the case. Um, we were not talking about it in those terms, um, but I did see that um, indigenous women, when and if they their um, murders uh, or cases of disappearances were reported, were also uh, represented in ways that um, devalued their lives, meaning um, they reproduced really problematic stereotypes that were sexist and racist and put the responsibility onto them for their fate. So I, from the start, have this really strong sense that in order to understand uh, gendered violence as, as it affects differently positioned women, even in contexts as distinct as, as Mexico and Canada, we really did have to have a, a transnational perspective. And we had to understand that also from an intersectional standpoint. Um, then as I moved on to my doctoral work, I started to focus less on representation and I became more focused on activism and specifically legal activism, how it is that feminist activists are mobilizing law, specifically international human rights law, to hold states accountable for failing to prevent, effectively investigate and punish um, this, this violence. And in the process also how it is that um, ideas 
of what constitutes gendered violence, what constitutes state's responsibility for that violence got transformed precisely as uh, as women reclaimed and from the grassroots really uh, reclaim and resignify those those um, ideas, right? And I see that parallel also here in the Canadian context, specifically with missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, it is really fascinating to me that a lot of the Indigenous activists and feminist activists that they allied with drew on the legal strategies of Mexican feminists specifically uh, to make their claims about how the Canadian state was failing uh, indigenous women uh, and girls and indigenous communities more generally. So that is kind of how I decided to to work on on these areas of of research. But I have also focused on how um, feminist knowledge, feminist strategies, feminist legal discourses also travel transnationally. I mean, I already spoke a little bit about that just now, um, and um, I'm really interested in trying to go. Uh, beyond singular notions of gender oppression. I'm really interested in going beyond uh, narrow binaries of the local and the global or methodological nationalism, just thinking that everything that happens is bounded somehow by by the state. Uh, when, when really all the process, when really um, the processes that I'm interested in from the start have always had transnational roots, you know, like colonialism, uh, neocolonialism, neoliberalism, capitalism. Um, all of those are transnational processes that are implicated both in the social construction of gender, but also in um, the creation and deployment of, of, of legal regimes, uh, legal strategies. Um, so, so that's really uh, where, where I'm coming from. And at the same time, I think taking a transnational lens to understand how gender uh, law and power intersects necessarily draws attention to uh, north-south hierarchies and problematizes them because it is often, the, uh, I think, assumed that ideas about human rights or effective responses to gendered violence uh, come from, from the global north. Uh, and that's really honestly not, not true. And, and uh, it is um, by focusing on transnational connections, also uh, on the activism of differently positioned women within global south that um, we can challenge these ideas about um, human rights, law, um, and uh, different hierarchies of, of of power. So that's that's kind of why I decided to do what I do, what drives me. Um, so yes. Yeah, thank you for that. And it sounds like you're taking like a really intersectional approach and trying to highlight, mm -hmm. um, you know, indigenous feminist activism and and of that course. kind of thing. And you're kind of combating what a lot of people might refer to as white feminism, which is, you know, really important and highlighting like voices that are often left out of the feminist conversation. So that's, that's incredible work and really interesting. And I'm looking forward to, you know, speaking more about your work throughout, throughout the duration of the podcast. Thank um, you. So you recently published a research article that was titled Indigenous Women, Multiple Violences and Legal Activism Beyond the Dichotomy of Human Rights as Law and as Ideas for Social Movements. So why did you decide to focus on Indigenous women specifically when 
exploring human rights rather than women more broadly or women from from other different social groups? Well, my research agenda has focused on on other women. Like, uh, as I was just telling you, I have focused on uh, feminist legal activism in Mexico, for example, as part of my research agenda. Um, uh, I, I, I have, um, that's actually what in many ways brought me to focus on, on indigenous women and girls. So just to give you a bit of a background to answer your question. Um, so the core of my research agenda with respect to Mexico is um, the concept uh, frame and legal category of feminicide. Feminicide is different from femicide. Femicide is commonly defined as the misogynist murder of women by men and feminicide uh, got translated but also transformed in the Mexican context to focus on um, the killing of women also as a state crime. So feminicide highlights the complicity of the state in gendered violence, both by tolerating um, a climate of impunity, but also by sustaining structural gender inequality. And I have focused on how feminist activists in Mexico then mobilized human rights law to hold the Mexican state accountable for its failure to act with due diligence. Um, to prevent, investigate, and um, punish feminicide. And as I was saying earlier, I saw a lot of parallels between indigenous, uh, the violent, violence against indigenous women in the Canadian context and feminicide and activism against it in the Mexican context. Um, and I was actually really curious as to why the uh, concept of feminicide uh, or even femicide was not used frequently or at all actually in the Canadian context to understand uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. When I presented in conferences, many Indigenous um, scholars or activists that were present told me, oh, that's exactly what's going on here in Canada. Um, you know, authorities dismiss reports of uh, missing women, indigenous women, they use uh, racist and sexist stereotypes, um, and they uh, don't take uh, us seriously. They are actually also often perpetrators of violence. Uh, and uh, there's also outright denial that this is a problem. And, um, but um, the concept of feminicide, I think because it sounds really weird in English, to be honest, um, so the retranslation from femicide to feminicidio to then feminicide, um, it, it didn't, it hasn't gained traction here. And I think the concept of femicide has also not been, um, it hasn't resonated with indigenous women because oftentimes that's still associated with a very radical feminist understanding of violence that focuses on gender as the primary axis of uh, oppression as opposed to a more intersectional perspective um, that takes into consideration other intersecting structures of inequality, specifically race uh, and class. But I actually suggest that we would need to go beyond an intersectional approach to also take a decolonial approach that considers colonial violence as constitutive of this. So to um, answer your question, a kind of long-winded way, um, but for me, it has always been important to focus on indigenous women and indigenous women experiences and of, 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 of violence and resistance precisely because they highlight the limits of um, a lot of 
mainstream approaches and even critical approaches like the Mexican approach to, to feminicide, because even within Mexico, um, indigenous activists there have drawn attention to the fact that um, um, these conceptualizations of feminicide, while powerful because they put the focus on the state as being complicit in this violence, still haven't paid attention to questions of race, ethnicity, uh, or colonial violence, or land dispossession, or even conceptualizations of rights and violence that come from indigenous women. So um, indigenous women in Mexico and indigenous women here in Canada have radically different ways of conceptualizing violence, for example. It's not just violence against one individual, um, but uh, against communities, against their leaders, against their ways of life, thinking, knowing um, their territories, their land, they are so connected that they really do uh, challenge um, normal, normative, uh, traditional ways of, of thinking about this. So for me, uh, even though I have actually focused on other women's groups, uh, also marginalized women in, in, in Mexico, uh, focusing on indigenous women, how they mobilize rights, how they think uh, about violence against them, how they resist that has really been important. So that's that's why I've decided to, to focus on on indigenous women, although not exclusively, uh, to, to to talk about human rights, and I think it is important precisely to keep into consideration that that women are not a homogeneous group. That uh, even when we are talking about indigenous women, we actually have to think about their historical and political heterogeneity. Indigenous women in Canada. Um, have very different experiences and indigenous women from Mexico, but even within these contexts, there's a lot of heterogeneity uh, among them as well. So um, I think paying attention to, to, to that is, is super important and we can learn a lot from indigenous women and their resistance. Um, so that's that's why I've decided to focus on that. Yeah, that that's really interesting. And I think it's, it's important too that you mentioned like the heterogeneity of of women and how each woman has individual circumstances and individual intersecting identities and that kind of thing because I mean I think often when you hear I mean especially if you listen if you follow American politics you often hear them talk about the women's vote as if women are this one particular group that all have the same issues and things that we care about when that's not really the case um, I do want to follow up on something that you mentioned though so um, you mentioned earlier in, in, in this previous answer that um, femicide is something that's often talked about, but feminicide has been missing from the Canadian Indigenous women's context and activism. So why do you think that is like, why do you think it's something that we we fail to talk about more? Um, I think feminicide is um, a relatively recent addition to academic, um, yeah, like Anglo speaking academic uh, circles. Um, so it's only really as of 2010 that Rosalinda Fregoso and Cynthia Bejarano published um, Terrorizing um, Women in the Americas, um, which is a great book that discusses, introduces the concept of feminicide. Um, uh, but uh, they focus more on like Latin America, etc. And I think that that's where there's a disconnect that um, 
uh, feminicide has dominated a lot of scholarship about Latin America or women's experiences in Latin America and Mexico specifically. And uh, those parallels that I'm trying to highlight in my work are not readily uh, seen. Um, again, we're also talking about politics of, of, of translation and hierarchies of, of, of knowledge. Femicide is a very well-established term in the academia uh, and uh, here in, in Canada, for example, uh, both in sociology, criminology, and outside of um, um, those disciplines. Uh, and so it, it's, it's hard for a new term to, I think, become established once there's a more like deeply rooted term. Um, I think my colleague Myrna Dawson is doing though, an amazing job actually of trying to, to challenge that. Dr. Dawson um, had the... Uh, at the University of Guelph, the um, yeah, the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability. So even though Dr. Dawson um, has, um, yeah, so Dr. Dawson, uh, my colleague at the University of Guelph, has uh, created the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability. Um, they still use the term femicide primarily. Um, but uh, there's a new um, book coming out that Dr. Dawson edited with uh, uh, um, another scholar, Saidi Moyabe, and um, it's it's going to be a great collection that is actually trying to bridge that divide and talk about feminicide uh, as well as femicide and uh, in different contexts. So in fact, there's a forthcoming chapter there that I co-authored with indigenous women from Mexico and a um, Mexican anthropologist that talks also about uh, feminicide and femicide and colonialism. But one of the reasons that I think that feminicide hasn't quite landed here in Canada is that for indigenous women, um, the frame uh, of, fem of genocide became much more salient and, and, and uh, politically relevant to, to um, um, characterize um, and uh, their experiences. And uh, I agree that that's what's, what's, what's happened. And uh, I'm, I would never dream of imposing a term on, on indigenous women and, 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 and how they understand uh, and conceptualize their experiences. So, um, but I think another issue is that even though there's now important work to try to challenge the historical way of thinking of femicide uh, as primarily associated with uh, gender as the key axis of oppression, um, that historical emphasis is kind of what turned away uh, indigenous femi feminists and indigenous women and scholars from using the term because for them it is about um, racial violence and colonial violence, um, not just gender violence. Uh, and I don't think that the understanding of feminicide um, as encompassing those dimensions in addition to the state uh, arrived early enough uh, for, for, for it to have an impact. Um, but it doesn't mean that genocide doesn't can't can do that that work. For me, the only reason that it would be, I think, um, still worthy of considering feminicide is that there's a huge movement uh, across Latin America is really, really strong in trying to demand state accountability. And there's a lot of solidarity, although still tensions among feminist activists as to 
uh, how to how to get the state to address this problem of gendered violence against differently positioned women. Um, but um, still, the movement is is so strong, and I think it 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 would only be stronger if 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 uh, we could learn more from from indigenous women and incorporate their insights uh, and knowledge, experience, critiques as well into that. But I that's that's probably why it hasn't arrived here in Canada or it hasn't resonated. So maybe arrived is not the right word, more like resonated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. So I suppose I'm like looking to the future. Um, how do you reconcile the, um, the dual function of human rights as law and as ideas for social movements to advance the injustices that are faced by Indigenous women? Mm -hmm. that's that's a really important question um because i actually think that um they go together um uh, as i discuss in my article there's often the notion uh that uh law is inaccessible to the grassroots that it's elitist that it can silence victims or it imposes uh a narrow idea of, of who's a victim uh, or social change, and uh, it contributes to uh, de-radicalizing movements and claims um, that are made because they rely on a legal language uh, that um, simplifies um, experiences or erases complexities um, there's also the the idea that um, uh, Locke is serving the agenda more of of, of lawyers or other um, legal actors more so than than those that that would really benefit from 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 legal action. And in that sense, uh, other scholars have argued that it's really how people talk about law or use law to frame problems, but don't engage in formal legal processes, that is, it, that's really where, where law can contribute to, to, to emancipatory um, projects. And coming from the experience of um, women's activism in Mexico against uh, feminicide, I realized that that was not necessarily a story that reflected how they had mobilized uh, law. Uh, this is not to say that that law has always been accessible to them or that law is not full of contradictions and that it hasn't been used to reproduce uh, inequalities. Like law is, of course, a, a tool of power and um, a patriarchal and other forms of power in, in particular. But I think that we concede sometimes too much um, to ideas that that law is de facto uh, uh, elitist or inaccessible. When in fact, um, I, I I've seen it with my own eyes that uh, women that had even like no primary school education uh, took cases of their murdered daughters all the way to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. And law became a central, a central strategy for them to, to demand accountability and to uh, challenge uh, the status quo of 
impunity in in Mexico. And in that sense, uh, I think that it's important to to see that um, they they work together. It, law is an important social movement strategy, but we have to take into consideration that formal legal processes play an important role there, and that um, that there are. Um, not just opportunities, but uh, ways in which um, grassroots actors, even if they're not the ideal, quote unquote, uh, subjects of rights that are imagined by legal discourses, uh, are able to intervene in really radical, innovative uh, ways that have, in fact, contributed significantly to, to social change, to legal change, to political change. And uh, that goes beyond just extra legal um, discourses or extra legal applications of legal ideas, et cetera. Like I, I, I do think that the legal impact uh, of the specifically formal legal interventions, be it petitioning to the inter-American human rights system, uh, engaging uh, with feminist legislators to push forward specific laws on gendered violence, like in Mexico, for example, uh, feminicide became a federal crime. Uh, it's, it's a formal uh, penal category. Um, uh, at the federal level, also subnationally, it's also in at least 16 uh, Latin American countries, like all of that has had tremendous implications for um, the ways in which uh, women are able to, to demand uh, accountability um, is the law enforced uh, because these law uh, these crimes now exist? No, um, but has it transformed um, opportunities to engage with the state for women to practice citizenship in insurgent ways and to transform um, the ways in which we think about violence and state responsibility and rights? I I would argue that 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 yes, and when it comes to indigenous women, I. I think the power of their legal activism is is all the more important precisely because they're coming from even more um, different ways of thinking about violence, um, rights, their relationship to the state. And, and uh, they, they really defy, I think, you know, uh, the ways in which these formal legal processes should operate to begin with. Uh, they really... Um, are, are challenging anyone that is thinking about law and human rights um, by, by virtue of introducing other uh, languages, other ways of thinking, like I was saying about uh, what it means to, to um, yeah, belong to a community where violence has already been happening historically. Um, that uh, it, it forces us to think intersectionally. It forces us to, to also recognize um, that, that state power uh, operates in, in both very overt and insidious ways at the same time and that we don't often think about, uh, but contribute to reproducing violence on an everyday basis. 
in ways that it's often like uh, not able, we're not able to measure or quantify or even uh, render visible. But when when indigenous women have mobilized, they draw attention to, to these um, issues. And for me then uh, it is important both to, to view human rights as, as um, ideas for social movements and as law, because that's really where uh, I think we can have um, a more, I think um, it, it is likely to contribute to um, more critical ideas about law. Uh, and at the same time, it, it can recognize, we can recognize the limits of law, but also its potential precisely when, like I said, these quote unquote, um, who are not considered ideal subjects of right are, are actually able to to claim uh, those rights and constitute themselves as 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 legal subjects, but that depart from these narrow ideas of of who is a subject of rights and 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 who can mobilize law. In today's feminist news roundup, Legal Cheek has reported that Clyde and Co has announced a new ramped up version of their maternity and paternal leave policy which will offer 26 weeks of fully paid parental leave, regardless of parental role or gender. Also in today's news roundup, activists in Pakistan are pushing for greater menstrual awareness in the country and are fighting to combat the country's taboos on periods and women's health. Finally, Amnesty International and the International Commission for Jurists have said that the Taliban's crackdown on the rights of women in Afghanistan could constitute a crime known as gender persecution under the International Criminal Court. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters, and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.